morning, everyone. We want to welcome you to church. My name is Steve Bray. I'm the lead elder of Calvary Baptist Church. Welcome to all of you that are tuning in online as well. I trust you have your Bibles open to John 15. I want to focus on verses 12 to 17, but particularly verses 14 and 15 this morning as I continue this idea of conversations with Christ. That's what I titled my journey through the Gospel of John, because again, just uh, those of you that are new, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we often call the four Gospels, of the four Gospels, John records more dialogue between Jesus Christ and people. And so, including John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, which is his last dialogue with the disciples. John chapter 17, by the way, is actually the Lord's Prayer. That's not that thing that we learned in school back in Matthew chapter 6. Rather, that's the model prayer. But if you want to actually read the words of Jesus as he prayed for us, you would read John chapter 17. And to be honest, I can't wait till I get there. But I started this particular section, John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17 last week, reminding us that Jesus loves us. Today, I want to deal with this idea of what a friend we have in Jesus. And the reason I say that is because the theme of verses 12 to 17 is really about how you and I, as professing Christians, are called to love each other. And my hypothesis is this, that you and I are never going to love each other properly. We're never going to reflect the love of Jesus unless you really believe in, trust in, and know how much Jesus loves you. And you're never going to be friends if you don't realize what a friend you have in Jesus. So let me ask you here for a few minutes this morning as we clue up and get ready to go out to the park after a hurricane, enjoy a barbecue together, watch our friends get baptized. If you or someone you know, sorry, if someone you know came up to you and said this, tell me who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Can you tell me who Jesus is? What would your answer be? How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Or tell me, who is Jesus to you? Would you likely think of passages like Isaiah chapter 9 that we hear at Christmas? You know, he is the counselor, the wonderful God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Would you think of passages like Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we hear that he is the one that was like a lamb that was slain, but now he's alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, and all of those superlative adjectives that we hear about. Maybe you'd go to Revelation chapter 19, where we read about the Son of God coming on the white horse with a name that no one can say, and there's this wonderful, majestic view of Jesus. Or maybe you would think of Matthew chapter 1, another passage at Christmas time, when we're told that His name shall be called Emmanuel, for he's God with us, and he shall save his people from their sins. Some of you might even think, and I think this is what the version of Jesus that we are all kind of looking for in a way, is the one we meet in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus himself says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come unto me, because he says, I am gentle and lowly. And so we're looking for that humble, gentle, approachable Jesus. 
But if I got a little bit more personal with you or the friend or stranger you met that asked you who was Jesus and they said, well, is that Jesus to you? It's one thing if you can give a technical definition of who Jesus is, but then if somebody really gets personal and says, who is Jesus to you? I mean, after you've used all these big words and wonderful descriptions, which by the way, none of them are untrue. What or how does that get you through your everyday life? If Jesus is the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father and the Wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God, if He is the Lamb who was slain, if He is a Savior and Lord and all of these things, and if He is gentle and lowly and if He is the Good Shepherd, how does that get you through the junk that you're going to deal with today or face tomorrow? It's interesting to me that in this passage that Chris so graciously read for us, that Jesus gives his sort of farewell address to his disciples. It's kind of his last will and testament, so to speak. He wants these 11 to understand just how much he loves them. Chris read it. He says, as the Father loves me, so have I loved you. And remember last week I reminded you that how does God love Jesus It's not just about grace and mercy, which is often how we tend to think, I need mercy, I need grace. We heard that as a regular theme in every one of the testimonies. But the next level of this is when you realize that God the Father, because of Jesus Christ, loves you and I as God the Father loves God the Son. He delights in Him. He is passionate for Him. And so he wants them to understand how much he loves them and how much he wants them to love each other. And he wants them to do that because he actually commands them. Look at the beginning of verse 14 in Matthew, or sorry, in John 15. Look at what he says. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Back in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. And it's interesting because you've got to do it in both directions. We've got to know how much God loves us before we're ever going to love each other. And then we need to be settled on the love of Christ and the friendship of Christ. If you and I ever have a hope of understanding what it means to go face and love a world that will largely reject and hate us. I love this. Jesus will talk of his sacrificial love. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And then in verse 15 and 16, he loves them with a missional love. I have elected you and I've given you a purpose. And which, by the way, if you look in verse 16, it's going to fuel their prayer lives. So in the middle of all of that, Jesus chooses to describe himself and his relationship to these 11. Now understand who these 11 guys are. You and I can call them the 12 disciples. I say 11 because Judas has already left. He's gone to betray Jesus. But here's 11 guys. But I want to put it in the context of our real emotions that you and I are dealing with here on September the 12th of 2021. He was dealing with 11 guys who were hurting, confused, tired, and scared. And he says to them, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. Have you ever considered how many hymns and songs we sing about Jesus as friend that have been written over the last 2,000 years? 
the great hymn that I got my title for, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Phillips Craig and Dean coined the song, I Am a Friend of God. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Another hymn, I found a friend in Jesus. That great southern gospel one. Jesus, what a wonderful friend. Another one is Jesus is my friend. The children's friend is Jesus. Jesus, my good friend. Jesus, a friend like you. And on and on and on it goes. In fact, if you go to the website called Song Select, and under the heading themed friend, you will discover that there are 1,267 songs written around the theme of friendship. What a friend we have in Jesus. Now, these are the bookends. Last week, as I said, we spoke about the Jesus love for us. Today, I want to speak about Jesus' friendship with us. And then, Lord willing, at the end of September, I want to preach about our love for each other, our friendship with each other. And the other reason I'm doing this is because you're never going to love someone else, and you'll never be someone's friend the way the Bible commands us to be, unless you actually know and believe and trust in Jesus' love and friendship to you. If you look at our passage again in John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17, notice with me what Jesus does. Look at verse 12 again. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. And then go down to verse 17 when he says this, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus starts with, this is my commandment, and ends with, these things I command you. And in between that, Jesus is going to declare some basic things. In between these bookends of commands, Jesus reminds them of how much he loves them. He declares his friendship with them. He promises to tell them everything. He promises to be with them. He commissions, commissions them with both promise and purpose. And look at verse 16. Because it informs them that his love for them and his friendship with them and his informing them and his calling them will fuel their prayer life and ensure that their life and mission will have results. In other words, once you realize how much you are loved by Jesus and once you realize the glorious privilege of saying, I have a friend in Jesus, then guess what happens? You have value and purpose in life. I don't think you realize how freeing that is. We live in a world that is driven by social media. We live in a world where all of you, especially as I look out and see so many young people, and the world via social media as something as trite as Twitter and Instagram and what's worse, Snapchat, something that appears for what? Three to five seconds and then vanishes away. And yet it is often what fuels so many of you and your view of belonging, beauty, acceptance, value, and purpose. And I can prove it. A couple of days ago, actually it might have been just yesterday, I put a Facebook status out. I follow a marriage ministry because I'm very passionate about marriage. I'm married to my childhood sweetheart. And I put a Facebook quote from that particular ministry, which is a prayer. It's just a ministry that offers up prayers for marriages. And so I put a Facebook quote out yesterday that said, Lord, help us in our marriages and any things that are strongholds. And you know, in the last 24 hours, I have been texted and called and emailed to make sure that my marriage to Debbie is okay. 
Even my daughter texted me and Debbie this morning. Are you guys okay? Why? Because of a Facebook status. This is where it's at. This is what our world has devolved into. That your value and substance and meaning in life is found in 240 characters on Twitter? This is where we got to realize. Jesus says, no, I've got something much, much better for you. And this is why, by the way, in the Gospel of John, 21 chapters, John chooses these seven special signs that he uses. Why he chose to let us know how Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. That in John chapter 6, he is the bread of life that we need. He is the door that we need to walk through. He is the good shepherd we need to trust. Jesus is the light of the world and the only light that can truly guide you through the chaos of this world. And not only that, he will live this life now with us. But then in John chapter 11, he is the resurrection and the life to guide us through life into eternity. And as Jesus stated back in John 14, he's the source of all this. And then in 15, he is the vine. He is our provider. So I ask again, from the youngest of you to the oldest, who is Jesus? Not technically, but substantively to you. Who is Jesus? How would you describe Jesus to somebody else? We've watched our six testimonies. We're going to go to a public place and watch all six of them publicly declare, I love and trust Jesus. But I want everybody to understand, this is more than a religious ritual. This is a reality of life. Who is Jesus to you and to me? Does it actually transform the way we see ourselves, see others, and the world? Through Jesus as who loves me and Jesus as my friend is the lens by which you and I can see our culture... See COVID-19 and cultural pressures. Jesus loves me and Jesus is my friend. Does that fuel your choices and your perspective on relationships? On career? Money? Where you live? How you treat your spouse? Your kids? Or your parents? Notice with me in just these few thoughts in verses 14 and 15. Take a moment to ask yourself this. Please, as we begin in the fall season, do I believe that Jesus is my friend? And do I believe that Jesus loves me? Today, I want us to discover that Jesus is not only a friend, he is the friend. He is the friend who will love us perfectly. He loves us perfectly and knowingly. Jesus is the truest friend you can have. And really that boils down to this proposition then. Will you trust him? So let me give you just three things to take with you as we go into this day and into this coming full week of back to school and all of the stuff that goes with it. As we're headed towards an election, as we deal with masks and mandates and vaccines and vaccine passports and all the stuff that goes with that and the economic upheaval and all of the division that we see in our culture, I want you to realize that according to this passage of the Word of God, Jesus isn't just our friend, He is the friend. Listen, number one, Jesus is our constant friend. He is not moody or fickle. He's not here today and gone tomorrow. 
He's not one that gets impatient or frustrated. Tim Keller puts it like this. Only in Jesus Christ do we learn just how far God would go to identify with the poor and the oppressed. He became a poor human being who died on the cross. He actually becomes a victim of human injustice so that he can offer justice to us all in the form of mercy and grace. Jesus is our constant friend. Jesus was there for those disciples. He was there in the good times and the bad. And you listen, I promise you, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because if you can't identify with the 12 disciples, there's nobody that you're ever going to identify with. I love them because they were idiots. (laughs) And that's me with a capital I. He was there when they struggled and they struggled. He was there when they questioned and I questioned. He was there when they were afraid. He was, guys, I'm afraid of dogs and bumblebees. All right? So I get this. Jesus was there. He was the friend that told them the truth. He was the friend who encouraged them. He was also the friend that confronted them. But day in and day out, Jesus was there. He was about to be there for them in a way they couldn't even possibly imagine. Because the context of this passage is Jesus is literally only 12 to 16 hours away from Calvary. Judas is about to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. He's about to be arrested and captured, tried innocently, falsely accused. He's going to be whipped and beaten and and laughed at and scorned and spit upon. His beard will be yanked out. A crown of thorns will be shoved on his head. He'll be so physically exhausted, he won't be able to carry his own cross. They will hang him by a crucifixion where he'll hang naked for hours. And then finally, they're going to shove a spear in his side just to make sure he's dead. And I would submit to you that that is nothing compared to the spiritual suffering he was about to face for his friends. You see, trying to explain the suffering of Jesus would be trying to tell a three-year-old about the horrors of war. Oh, a three-year-old might sense it's bad, but they lack the maturity and the intelligence to truly appreciate what you're trying to say. And this is what it's like when you and I try to appreciate what Jesus bore and suffered for you and me at Calvary. Jesus has already been tired. He's been attacked and slandered and abandoned. He's been taken advantage of. He felt the unending demands of desperate people. He has felt the tension of both religion and politics. But what does that compare to his crucifixion? That's like a cold rain compared to drowning. Friends, the physical suffering can't be compared to the spiritual and relational trauma that Jesus was about to face. And listen to me now. He faced it for his friends. How? How can you and I know what it is to bear the sin of an entire world? For just a couple of seconds, think about everything you've ever done wrong. Every little white lie, every time you've ever lost your temper, been selfish, every time that you've either assumed the worst or simply broke a promise. Everything that you have ever done. Now multiply that by the 250,000 people in St. John's. Or the 525,000 people in Newfoundland and Labrador. 
or the little over 2 million people of Atlantic Canada, or the almost 38 million people of Canada, or the almost 8 billion human beings alive today. Think about how much sin that is. Now think about all of human history. And Jesus hung on that cross. And God the Father placed all of the punishment of all sin, of all human beings for all time. And Jesus said, I will pay it all. What kind of love is that? What kind of friendship is this? So if you're going to get anything on this Sunday morning, God is for you. He's not against you. You may have given up on God, and I think many of us have at times, but he's never even entertained the idea of giving up on you because he is for us. This is what Jesus says in our passage. It's the sentence that Paul must have put into paragraphs in Romans chapter 8. Don't forget the questions that Paul asks of the Romans. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The rhetorical question, the answer is, well, nobody. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what's something else you can question? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and he's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So what shall we say to this love of Christ? Shall tribulation stop it? Or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through Jesus who loved us. And then Paul says, I'm sure of this. Death can't stop the love of Jesus. Life and my inability to live it perfectly can't stop it. Angels can't stop it. Rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, listen, Jesus is our friend. Look at verse 14 again and see the condition. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And I love that Jesus put that there. I really do. Because you know what? I know what a legalist I am. And I know how much I'm prone to be defensive and to deflect. You see, if, if we have come to Jesus and we said, Lord, you have shown yourself to be a friend to us, what must we do to be your friends? If it was us showing the initiative, what could Jesus have answered? Well, you have my example of what a true friend is. Do that. But if he had said that, the result would have been we needed to be discouraged. How could you and I possibly love like Jesus? How could we love as he loves? How could we give ourselves as he gave himself? It's impossible for us to die spiritually for anybody. And if Jesus had required us to do all he did, it would be impossible to become his friend. But he didn't say that. Instead, he put the requirement in terms and on a level saying, you can be my friends if you will only do what I command you. So what's he actually saying? This means we are to show our friendship to him by simple obedience. Hang on to that thought. 
Look at verse 15 again, because here is where I want you to see it. Look at what he says in verse 15 of chapter 15. I love this. He says, no longer do I call you servants. Some of your translations might even have slaves. For the servant, the slave, does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Why? For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So I want you to know, secondly, Jesus is our intimate friend. He's not just your constant friend. He's your intimate friend. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Jesus told this group, this group of no names, this misfits, this ragtag group of nobodies, I call you friends. Only two men have had that expression used of them in the entire Bible. You know which two? Moses and Abraham. Considered by Jews to be the two greatest Israelites ever. And Jesus says to this group of fishermen, I put you on a level with Abraham and Moses. Everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. This would never be true of a slave. A slave would never be allowed to know his master's business. The disciples are being brought into the circle of divine truth and knowledge. They're being brought even deeper because Jesus has just promised he's going to give them his spirit who reveals the depths of Christ's knowledge of them. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, So the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. But I want you to realize how profound this would have been for these 11 guys. William Barclay says, this phrase, I call you my friends, is lit up by a custom practiced at the courts, both of the Roman emperors and of the kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come into his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The, king, the friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate connection with him. Now listen to me. Jesus loves you so much. That's the relationship you and I can have with Jesus. You've got his word, the Bible. You have his life and history and antiquity. Jesus tells us the truth. Now, I'm not saying we know everything moment by moment, but we know what we need to know. We know that Jesus loves us. We know that God is for us. We know that the Holy Spirit is in us. We know to live is Christ and to die is gain. We know how this world will end. We know how life will go. We know that we can pray and that God hears us. We know we can trust God with our hurts and our life and our circumstances. Are you amazed? You see, it's one thing for you and I to say, I know him. He is my friend. Just like if I said to you, I know Sidney Crosby. Or I knew Joey Smallwood. Right? People, a lot of you here know of Joey Smallwood. I was his paper boy. I delivered the paper to him. I stood inside of his house many, many times. He once gave me a glass of milk and a sandwich. He was a good tipper. He was thankful. But in no circumstances would Joey Smallwood say, Stephen Bray was my friend. I could say, I know him, that I am friendly with him. 
But what about when someone of power and position of respect and fame declares you to be my friend? What if Premier Fury were to get on the news tomorrow at the latest update and say, my friend Steve Bray? That would cause me to get some tweets and emails and texts, right? So can you imagine what it would be like for the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who was killed and rose from the dead? And he says, by the way, Steve Bray is my friend and I am his friend because he loves me and I love him. This is what I want you to understand. No person is higher above others to the extent that Christ. Do you remember what Isaiah the prophet said? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. J.C. Ralph says this. For sinful men and women like ourselves to be called friends of Christ is something that our weak minds can hardly grasp and take in. The King of kings and Lord of lords not only pities and saves all them that believe in him, but actually calls them his friends. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But this same Jesus says, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. And these two verses, John 15, verses 14 and 15, tell us why. Why does Jesus love us? Because we're his friends. We are family. John started this all the way back in John chapter 13, verse 1. Look back there. If you've got your Bibles open, John chapter 13, verse 1 sets the whole thing up. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and I love this sentence, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That's the love of Jesus. It's not a fickle love. It's not Hollywood love. It's not romantic love. As we learned last week, it's sacrificial, it's intimate, and it's purposeful love. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, It is common for equals to love and for superiors to be beloved. But for the king of princes... For the Son of God, for Jesus to love humanity, this is amazing and even more. For we are the object of his love. And yet we are so low, so vile, so undeserving. Jesus is called God, King of glory. But we're called transgressors and sinners and enemies. The Bible says we're like dust and ashes. Even in places, humanity is described as fleas and worms and shadows and vapors and fools and weak and poor. And then Jesus comes and says, I love you and I'm your friend. Jesus sets his heart upon us and then in turn makes us not only lovely, but lovable. And Jesus never can and never will turn his back on his friends. So he's our constant friend. He's our intimate friend. And just for a minute, Jesus is our honest friend. I've often said to so many of the young people that are here and my passion for young people, a real friend tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And young people, listen to me, because the older you get, the truer that's going to get. You will have a lot of acquaintances in life. 
and very few friends. And you will be blessed of God if you are given one or two best friends. So why not have the best friend of all, the truest friend of all, an honest friend who tells you what you need to hear, not always what you want to hear, but a real friend will never bail on you. And Jesus is the true example of what it means to speak the truth in love. Look again at what he said. I love you. Do what I tell you. He puts a condition on it. Jesus loves us and he tells us what must happen for sin to be paid. He told them that he was going to go to the cross. Jesus warns us what happens if we refuse him. But Jesus still loves us. Jesus tells us what life is like is going to be like. But he loves us. Jesus not only tells us but knows us and knows all things about it. And you guessed it. He loves us. He loves us to give us his word. He loves us to give us his spirit. He loves us to intercede for us and advocate for us. He loves us to reign over us and come back for us. And he loves us enough to tell us how all this chaos is going to end over and over again. He says, I love you. I forgive you. And again, let me remind us of the difference between Jesus and every other God and philosophy out there and around the world. Only Jesus gives himself to us and then draws us all to himself. Only Jesus of every religion and philosophy in the world, God is the only deity known to humanity that actually wants us with himself for eternity. Only Jesus promises to never leave us or forsake us. Only Jesus wants us to bring him our hearts. He wants you to go to him with your questions and your doubts and your fears and your sin and your suffering and your confusion. Only Jesus delights to hear us pray to him. And then he promises to answer those prayers. Only Jesus will work all of our circumstance for his glory and our good. Only Jesus has the power over our lives and in our lives and will work out our lives into eternity. And so when suffering strikes, and it will. You don't need good thoughts. Don't run to Amazon and buy chicken soup for the soul. When suffering strikes, you need a good God. Truth without the affections is dead religion. An affection without truth is idolatry. We are called to worship God rightly with both our mind and our heart. That's what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. And I actually think it's pretty simple. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command you. Now, unfortunately, some Christians talk about the Christian life as though it consisted largely in refusing to do stuff. We think of religion as all the don'ts. Don't drink alcohol. Don't play cards. Don't have extramarital sex. Don't cheat in business, and on and on and on it goes with our list of don'ts. Jesus calls us to love one another. It's a bunch of do's. And they can't be done except in practical ways. We're able to pray for each other. We're able to worship with other Christians. Our lives are to be marked by doing good and sacrifice and loving each other. It makes a great difference in the lives of many Christians when you read the Bible and pray. Not to figure out what you don't do, but what God has called us to do. Be like Him. We're to live for Christ. We're to love like Christ. And that will conform us to Christ. John Stott said, the Bible is a dangerous book to read. 
And the church is a dangerous society to join. For in reading the Bible, we hear the words of Christ. And in joining the church, we say we believe in Christ. And as a result, we belong to the company described by Jesus as his friends. So I started with friendship. That we can say we are friends of God. But imagine what it would be like to hear someone say, I am your friend. The most favorite song of Toy Story, You've Got a Friend in Me, is meant to be powerful and encouraging, but it's more than a song, it's actually a promise. So what do we do when Jesus says, you are not just my friends, you've got a friend in me. I'm your friend. Now Matthew does warn us, the tax collector, the tragic opposite of this in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus preached and said, Oh, many will say, I know Jesus. And then he says, I will say to them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. See, is Jesus your friend is what I asked you at the beginning. Now I must ask, are you Christ's friend by this definition? Do you know him as the one who demonstrated his love and friendship for you by dying? Is he your friend in that sense? As the old hymn says, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. You only need to come to him. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your need of him to be your savior and your friend. And the only way you're ever going to love Christians And the only way that you're ever going to be a friend is when you realize that you have the ultimate friend of Jesus Christ. Richard Baxter said, I've entrusted myself not to a grave, but to Christ. So my flesh will rest in hope until Jesus raise it to the everlasting rest. Scotty Smith said this, right now, God delights in you. He quiets us with his love. He joyfully sings over us, according to Zephaniah 3.17. And he sings over us and he loves us and he's our friend. Not because of our paltry little Christ-likeness. But on the basis of our perfect in Christness, And then Christ is with us. And nothing matters. Jesus is your constant friend. He's your intimate friend. He's your honest friend. Do you know him? Do you want to? Don't let today go by and not know him like that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that you are a friend who tells us the truth. You're the friend that will never leave nor forsake. You are the only friend that ever died and then came back. You live right now. Lord, for all the men and women here in this room, those that have watched on a television screen downstairs, those that have watched and listened up in the balcony, those that have tuned in at home and online and around the world, I pray, almighty God, that we would know you as friend. We would know the love of Jesus. And Lord, if you agree to tarry and we come back together in a couple of weeks, 
We unpack what it means to love each other as God has loved us and is friends to us. I pray if there's anybody here and they are confused or hurt or searching, they feel lonely, overwhelmed. If they're angry or bitter, Lord, whatever they are feeling and dealing with, whatever we are struggling with, help us to believe that you love us and you're our friend. And if you've loved us as enemies enough to die for us, how much do you love us when we trust you? Thank you. What a friend we have in Jesus. In Jesus' name.